This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalife. Today's episode is sponsored by HireRect, the number one hiring app for startups, where job seekers and hiring managers can chat about open positions they're interested in anytime, anywhere. Download the HireRect app now on the App Store or Google Play. Austin Long, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Of course. Thank you for having me. We're going to delve a little deep into your to your entrepreneurial background, but uh, primarily your, your main focus right now is being the co-founder of a company called U2s. Uh, spelled Y-O-U-T-O-O-Z, uh, basically a company turning that sort of nostalgia, internet culture into amazing physical uh, products that, that people actually love. You've grown this this uh, community to an online following with more than 2 million uh, in, in just two years. So there's a, there's been a lot of uh, growth around this, actually. Um, you're a young co-founder, if I'm not mistaken. I think you're around 26 years old, so kind of... Uh, same age and and i you know i rock with that that young entrepreneurial dna as well and uh, it's pretty cool to talk to you not just about the sort of collectibles the things that are happening in the fd space uh, but just some of some of your lessons learned so thanks again man for sure let's start with uh, i, I kind of did want to ask so um i think if i'm not mistaken hi, you you this whole sort of startup scene for you started much younger even though you're still relatively young but um you have experience you know creating your first company when you were still in high school curious like what what was that like and and what was the the company about for sure yeah so my first company i started uh i think when i was 14 or 15 um when i was uh early on so i guess started around middle school um was when youtube started to become much more of a platform that kind of anyone could upload to, especially more gaming style content. You know, it wasn't just short clips from, uh, you know, birthday parties or funny viral videos. It started to be more of people making specific content of, of different genres. So um, around middle school is when I first got access to Xbox Live uh, and started making videos of funny things that I was doing either on Halo, Call of Duty, Minecraft, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, and over time, I really saw that you know, YouTube was growing and this was going to become a platform that a lot of people were going to gravitate to, to watch content in their free time uh, or to make content on. Uh, and as I was making videos, I sort of over time saw that I really enjoyed the process of running the channel, but not as much of making content. Uh, I, I'd say I'm not a super creative person at heart. Uh, I'm more like the, the business side of things. So I, I saw an opportunity to start helping out a few friends uh, and other people that didn't have the resources to make their own videos, but were great personalities, you know, whether they were funny, charismatic, good storytellers. Uh, so started helping a few people, uh, ended up building their channels pretty large with them, mostly helping them do editing, uh, sort of business management for the channel, SEO, thumbnails, all the stuff that goes into running uh, a YouTube channel. And it took off. So by the time I was 16 uh, or 17, I had a couple of employees. They were sort of helping me uh, build up this operation. Uh, we had aggregated probably 50 or 60 channels that we were managing at that point, all in, in gaming, uh, mostly mobile games and console games. Uh, and, and it really sort of took off from there. So as I went into my senior year, uh, there was a fellow named Tamor um, who was working on a company called Omnia Media at the time. And that company was mostly doing uh, very similar to what I was doing, but in the music space. So at the time, it was just Vivo that was producing a lot of content on YouTube. And there wasn't channels dedicated to lifestyle content around music artists. It was mostly just music videos um, or, or different content that the labels or Vivo was making. Uh, so what he was doing was more lifestyle content, kind of mirrored what I was doing in, in gaming, uh, but specific to music. And he said, hey, you know, why don't you let me buy uh, the, this company that you've been working on, which I would called Square One. 
uh, and he was like, and then you can come out to LA and, and work with me for a few years. And after that, you can go to college. Uh, cause my parents were definitely very keen. You know, my, my mom had went to school and my dad hadn't, and they were definitely super keen on, on me going to school at some point. Um, so I said, sure. So I ended up selling the business to him. Uh, Omni at the time was maybe only 10 or 15 people, but he had raised a round for it. So he sort of used that to, to buy me out. Uh, and then when I graduated, I was 17, moved out to LA, told my parents, hey, I'll just take a year off. I'll work on this. And then, you know, I'll go back to school after. Um, and it ended up being a great experience. We grew Omnia, you know, from 10 people to uh, probably up to like 50, 60 uh, at some point. And over time, we transitioned from music to just focusing on gaming as sort of, you know, what I was doing with Square One became uh, Omnia entirely. It sort of just engrossed the business. Uh, and that was when gaming was really taking off. So uh, we ended up selling the business in 2016 to a Canadian company called Blue Ant. Um, they then went on to sell it a, a year or two ago to a, a public Canadian company. Uh, but Omnia became the largest uh, sort of in the space of managing and representing gaming creators and sort of helping them with content services. So the core of the business was really uh, how can talent turn what they love doing into a full-time job? You know, how can they take whether it's streaming or video production uh, within the gaming space and, and turn it into a career? So we would help them with uh, managing their channel, help them with editing, help them with uh, negotiating brand endorsements, you know, for different sponsorships or um, you know, brands that wanted to pay them to promote products. Uh, we helped them with licensing. And um, the, I would say really fun thing we get to do is bring to life these large projects. Uh, so one of them was the Sidemen show, which ended up being one of the most watched uh, YouTube original series of all time. And uh, we got to produce the series. I got to executive produce it, which was fun. Um, but yeah, we basically helped talent build uh, their business. And, and that went on um, sort of through, you know, what many people consider like the MCN boom of, of service driven businesses, helping creators. And it's definitely evolved a lot since then, you know, management companies and stuff have come in. Uh, but yeah, that, that was sort of where I got my start was really, um, in the creator space, helping talent, you know, build businesses. Well, yeah, there's a lot there to unpack, man. Um, it was, it's definitely an exciting journey. And I think what, what stands out to me the most uh, aside from you being 16 and doing this, which m must have been fucking cool. I mean, you just, you know, going, going through high school and being in a class and being like, yeah, but, uh, you know, I probably have to step out for a meeting here, <laughs> managing a couple of employees and your friends are like, dude, what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I so that, that, I, yeah, yeah it, it was great. I mean, my school, I, I grew up in a pretty small town in New Hampshire and, uh, thankfully they, they were super supportive. And, and I think a lot of schools are much more like that now. Um, especially in this day and age of, uh, you know, my senior year, they were able to actually structure a class where I was effectively just working. Uh, but I just had to report to them what I was working on. Uh, but I was essentially, you know, working on the business in school uh, and get a lot of support just by being transparent with, you know, the teachers of saying, hey, here's this thing I'm working on. I would love to have more time to work on it because I think it's a great learning opportunity. Um, and especially the classes related to like business, math, finance, that sort of thing. They were really open to supporting that. And you know, I'm obviously super appreciative of that to this day, because if I wouldn't have got that support, you know, I, pr I probably wouldn't be here. I feel like and this is more of a, a humorous thing to say, but I feel like school, schools don't want to be like, basically the, sc the school doesn't want to be that one school that turns you down, mm -hmm. you know, or, or didn't help you because if you 
are successful, they, they, you almost don't want to look back and be like, I was dropout or they never, you know, they never gave me the confidence. If anything, they feel like they're, they're trying to make more bets now, uh, you know, whether genuinely or not, but I, I think it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely a good strategy. Um, so, so to that point, one of the things I wanted to ask you, how did you, you know, 10 years ago was, was quite early for YouTube. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's still relatively still early for a lot of content creators and that's evolving, but how did you realize that that this was actually going to become a very prominent platform? You know, make a serious bet on it. Um, and my second question is, how do you evolve over time? Because obviously the platform has evolved, mm-hmm. the quality of videos. You pointed out some features, thumbnails and all that. But but it's not as easy as just like using my camera and, and putting a video out. Like it's becoming so much more competitive to stand out. Mm-hmm. So curious though, uh, you know, what your take is on those two. Yeah, I mean, I think what I saw back then, and, and it's the same till now, is uh, back then people were already gravitating towards uh, a very passive experience of watching content, right? Like, there's so much out in the world now to entertain people, whether it's video games, music, uh, you know, TV, whatever it might be. Uh, and YouTube, mm-hmm. along with other platforms too, have created this great experience where they feed you the content that you want to watch based on what you've watched in the past. Uh, and their algorithm, you know, has obviously changed a lot since, you know, 2014 or 2013. Uh, but that was still at the core of it then was, you know, how can we feed people content that they really like and sort of keep them in this ecosystem to, to entertain them? So I saw early on a lot of my friends and even myself just always finding these rabbit holes on YouTube of content that I enjoyed uh, that was much more personal than flipping on a TV channel and needing to find something, you know, like YouTube just kind of feeds it to you. Uh, so I think that was sort of the, the, the click in my head of like, okay, this is definitely going to be something someday, even if it's not YouTube, people are going to gravitate towards content that speaks to them and is more personal. Um, and then also just seeing people be able to create communities and followings, uh, you know, something that's really special about creators is how personal it feels and how much of a personal connection people can develop. Uh, especially, you know, during COVID, everyone's been inside for so long. Uh, building relationships online, you know, with creators is something that a lot of people consider part of their day-to-day lives now. Uh, and I definitely saw that early on of people, you know, finding whether they're introverted or not, just finding people online that they, you know, felt uh, they were similar to or that they aspired to be. Um, and building those communities are obviously super impactful as as they're able to build businesses around them and um, you know bring cool and unique pieces of content uh, to their fans. Yeah, the, the, that's a very interesting take because, especially to your point, I think that doesn't get talked about a lot, right? Like so much of the focus is on how, how negative social media can be and social media is bucketed with YouTube as an example or any mm-hmm. social platform really. But what doesn't get talked about as much and, and only if you're actually in this space do you talk about the friendships that you can create. I mean, I have a buddy of mine, dude, in Chicago. Um, he works for, for you know, within the tech startup scene his best friend he literally met through online mm-hmm. you know discord channels uh, playing games mm-hmm. basically you know and he's literally his best he's his best friend and he's going to be his best man at his upcoming wedding <laughs> that's awesome and so that doesn't get talked about as much though right like what are the the positives of this uh that, that we can actually leverage yeah so i think it's hard yeah, you know a lot of the times the the negative voices drown out the positives or you know, someone might love a piece of content or, or love a tweet or love an Instagram post, but not leave any feedback on it. So you don't always get that positive reinforcement. Uh, but I think it's definitely helped a lot of people, you know, even throw, we see a U2s, but even back in the day at Omnia, 
Um, you know, there's a lot of people that maybe it's because of where they live or who their friend group is, you know, they maybe don't feel like they have that connection with people. And online, you can pretty much be anyone, you know, you can have any username you want, uh, your profile picture doesn't even need to be you, you can be anonymous. So uh, the internet truly lets people express who they want to be or, or who they want the world to see them as. Uh, and, and that obviously creates a unique opportunity, especially for people that might be more introverted and, uh, you know, would prefer to build connections you know, online with people. Yeah, and and part of that I think is why you probably created YouTube's right. But I'm I'm curious, like, what was? Did you have a I guess a tipping point or like this eureka moment? I lo I love to always ask founders this because sometimes there was one and sometimes there really wasn't. It was just like you know an observation. Talked to a buddy of mine and we kind of made it happen. But curious, like, what was your thought process to take this um this this culture that's building on the internet and make it also physical so that people can have more of an emotional connection with. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would love if there was a, a eureka moment. I mean, a, a lot of it has just been <laughs> trial and error, you know, pivoting over time. Uh, I think, you know, the, the ethos of what we started with, though, is still at the core of what it is now, which is uh, for YouTube, we really wanted to capture the joy of the Internet. You know, like the, the Internet has brought myself and the rest of our team so much joy uh, over the years. And we wanted people to be able to take, you know, these things online that they love, whether it's a creator or a TV show or a funny meme, whatever it might be, uh, and have a way to represent that in real life on their desk, you know, that they can be proud of and that every time they look at it, it sort of puts a smile on their face. And, um, you know, other products can do that to an extent, like clothing and, uh, you know, like memorabilia or, or other things. But having a, a physical toy, you know, was, was very cool to us. I think everyone as a kid uh, loved toys. And, you know, if you told most people, hey, you can be a toy maker someday, they, they would probably love it. Uh, so for us, we are really big fans of cause. We really liked Kid Robot and Mighty Jacks and sort of these designer art toys and uh, what they had become to sort of culture in general uh, with people collecting them and, and then becoming sort of statement pieces where if you walked into someone's house and you saw, you know, a certain bear brick that you really liked, uh, it, was, it was a cool thing. Um, and we thought we could put an interesting spin on that by approaching it from more of an internet angle of, you know, how can we find things that truly bring people joy and, and bring that out of their computer onto their desk? Um, you know, that, that's definitely changed over time. We've expanded genres and stuff, uh, but it's always been at the core. And I think with everyone being inside, you know, for a year and a half, um, it, that's definitely caused a lot of our growth because people have, you know, got much more accustomed to watching things online and, and interacting online and, and wanting those things to be. Uh, in their house and in their room, on their desk, on their shelf, wherever it might be. Um, yeah, that, that was sort of our moment, but it definitely wasn't, you know, uh, uh, a eureka. It's it's sort of evolved over time. Nice. Thanks for validating. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm, try, I'm trying to like internally tabulate mm -hmm. which one is winning. Like out of the, the all the episodes I have, I'll ask this question, and then I want to see from let's say 500 episodes which one is overweight. Um, so that will be kind of cool research. One, mm -hmm. one thing I wanted to ask. So speaking of these like toys and, and you got to check out the, the YouTube's uh, collectibles to see what kind of toy we're talking about in case you haven't already come across it. One, one example that I found funny, I grew up watching family guy as mm -hmm. an example. Mm -hmm. I thought that, you know, that, was, that was pretty much my, my, my side education in, in, in high school, weirdly enough. I, I, I love watching it back then. And, um, you, you guys have a toy of Peter when he, you know, I think hit his leg on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. It's the, if you watch family guy, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's the, ah, you know, that, the, the very elongated, painful, uh, sigh that he kept doing. Um, so I, I thought that was cool. One question that came to mind though, is like, how do you work with the, 
like the IP owner. So like, is it, you're talking to Seth McFarlane and, and the, the actual parent company that runs family guy to get permission to resell it? Like how, how does that work? Yeah. So we sort of have three buckets, I guess, or genres that we release, uh, collectibles in. Um, the first is creators. The second is, uh, like memes or original characters with artists. And then the third is licensed IP. Uh, so I guess speaking to the licensed IP, um, the, the family guy figures were made with Disney now that they own Fox. Uh, so the way that all those relationships work is, mm. uh, most of the media companies have a internal consumer products team. Some of them use external teams too. Um, but that team, you know, their job is basically to go out and find cool and unique companies uh, to make products with. And they have a whole bunch of categories that they do outside of toys, um, you know, apparel, home goods, uh, food and beverage, you know, anything under the sun that you would see in like a Disney theme park is, is stuff that they're working on. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of them are definitely uh, much more traditional in their ways. You know, they're very used to working with retail channels. They're very used to two-year lead times. Uh, it's definitely, uh, an ever evolving business that is, is a bit ancient, you know, for some of the companies. Um, so we started doing licensed products, uh, about a year ago. Um, so a year into YouTube's and it was definitely, um, you know, difficult to start as there's a lot of storytelling and sort of explaining what we do. And as a direct to consumer business, we don't really sell much into retail. So there's a bit of a learning curve there in terms of explaining, you know, what our process is and our lead times, um, yeah, we, we essentially uh, work with the licensing teams. We submit to them a bunch of artwork in terms of our ideas. Um, and then we go through a back and forth process, which in the case of Family Guy took uh, like eight or nine months uh, start to finish to work through since not only is there internal creative teams, but it also does go, you know, to the creators like Seth, uh, who get that sort of final sign off, you know, because it's their baby. They, they made the show. Um, so through those, you know, we submit uh, a 2D concept. They usually review it, provide us notes. Then we sculpt it into a 3D model. They review that as well alongside the packaging. Um, then we make a prototype. We share that with them. They sign off on it. Uh, and then once they've approved all the actual like physical figures in their hand, um, we then send them sort of our marketing content, which goes on Twitter and Instagram, which they also review all that as well. Um, and then we put it out there and, and we sell it to the world. And uh, it's similar on the creator side and, and sort of the meme side, although uh, with creators, you know, they're obviously not a, a fully built media company. It's usually just a single person. Uh, so we're usually chatting with them directly about ideas. And oftentimes they're coming to us saying, hey, I have this very specific moment that my community loves. I'd love to turn that into a YouTube's. And then we design that with them. Um, and memes, it's very similar. Like we, uh, one of our most popular meme figures is Cheems, which is this dog uh, that lives in Hong Kong. Um, and it's a real dog. Right. So we reached out to the owner of the dog. Her name's Kathy. We were like, hey, we'd love to make a figure of Cheems. Um, and she's now been a partner with us for a year and a half now. We've made a bunch of cool stuff. And those are definitely fun because a lot of the times uh, creators of memes, you know, aren't necessarily like fully credited or recognized in the market. Like people just use memes and don't recognize that it's a real person. Um, but in those cases, you know, we get to provide them upside on their memes and, and pay them royalties uh, and create a really unique product with them. Um, but yeah, that, that's sort of the process on it. It's definitely easier and harder with some companies, you know, there's language barriers with some, cause we work with a lot of, uh, anime mm -hmm. properties and we go back and forth with teams in Japan. Um, but it's, it's super fun because we're creating products that are much more internet specific. So a lot of the times mm -hmm. the holders haven't ever had someone ask them to make, you know, the stuff that we're making, cause they're very used to, you know, just a person standing there holding a prop. 
Um, and we sort of want to go crazy with it and capture all these memes and um, memorable moments. Uh, but it's definitely been fun. You know, I, I was new to the world of licensing when I when I stepped out from from Omnia into YouTube's and. Uh, it's, it's been a good ride, you know, sort of learning and, and getting to work with a bunch of new people. One of the toughest parts of running a company is hiring the right talent. It can actually make or break your organization, especially in the early stages. And what's even tougher is how long it can take to find the right talent. It's time hiring got simple. That's why I'm so glad today's episode is sponsored by HireRect, the first chat-based app for startups. So you can actually chat with top talent and hire within hours, not weeks, straight from your phone. Download HireRect on the App Store or Google Play and check it out for yourself. You actually answered one of my one of my questions that I was thinking about, which is what was your, your best-selling or most popular uh, meme uh, in terms of a, a U2's form? So that answers it. And it actually leads to another question I had for you is, you, you talk about the sort of Asian market, right? For instance, like I, I went to Japan and, and there is a massive, obviously, anime market, uh, you know, different toys and, and the, the mini arcades. Like you know, they have a whole, as you may already know, like they have a whole uh, sort of city built around around that, if, or if not an area. So it, it's pretty cool to see how, how impactful that is within, it's embedded in their culture. And it's not, it's not an age thing. I mean, there are people from, you know, couple of years old all the way to people in their like 50s 60s who are really really entrenched uh in, in in this world and i don't and maybe this is just me being oblivious i don't see that as much in north america so i'm curious like what differences do you see in those two markets and do you see the north american market starting to trend towards what the asian markets are like korea china hong kong um, japan as an example yeah, I would say it's starting to translate more over. I mean, what we've seen is anime is growing uh, like crazy in the U.S. I mean, you know, it probably used to be like trend on Twitter, for example, maybe once a month or something. And now I feel like every day uh, there's something popular going on. Um, I would say a lot of that is just, again, the Internet sort of widening what people can see online and even stuff like Squid Games, you know, where a show was made. Uh, overseas and became widely popular around the world. I think we're going to see the same thing across other content genres, uh, anime being a big one of them. Um, you know, I don't know if the U.S. will ever get to the the point that Japan has in terms of people's love for collectibles and stuff, uh, but it's definitely growing a lot. And I would say, um, you know, people wanting physical pieces that represent characters and personalities and shows that they love uh, is going to continue to grow, especially as People want to collect things and remember them, you know, over their lives. Um, but uh, Japan is definitely a, a unique place. You know, I, I would say um, the amount of collectibles and the amount of time and passion that goes into them there uh, is super impressive. Um, and I would say, you know, we definitely aspire for a lot of the, like very traditional co uh, toy companies in Japan, you know, to get to that level uh, someday in, in terms of just, you know, the, the amount of time they spend on some of their figures is, is amazing. And there's a lot of cool YouTube videos too. Good Smile is, is one of the larger toy companies and they have a few YouTube videos that show a day in the life of like sculptors on their team. Um, and it's really fun to watch, uh, just cause they follow around their day, which is, you know, just making toys, uh, inside their office. So I would definitely check those out. They're, they're super cool videos. 
Yeah, I mean, th there's something to be said around this, like behind the scenes, right? Like I think a lot about this myself, even being in capital markets, you know, so I was telling you about like the market open. We did one in person in Chicago. And one of the things I really wanted to capture was behind the scenes. There's something, because even the content I consume, for instance, when I watched The Joker, the first thing I thought about after that movie, I, YouTube, I basically YouTube like the behind the scenes and, and you can see the director going through the different scenes and the wireframes and set up, you know, some of the CGI that, that they did to fill out the, you know, the buildings and whatever. So uh, another good example, UFC, right? Dana White is, is a great example of someone who does this really well. Uh, you know, they do the, the a couple of video buildup before the, the actual fight and, and looking for a fighter series. What, what, like, what do you think about um, sort of the user behavior that, that leads to wanting to get more personal, I guess, with either the pro product, the brand, or the person behind the product that makes this so important for people listening? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is people seeing the process, um, because I, I think when you see the process of creating stuff, you know, <laughs> I guess in a broad way, um, it, it allows people to have a lot more respect uh, and like admiration for what's built. So like with the UFC as an example, people seeing behind the scenes with Dana of, you know, the struggles and the challenges of, of building the UFC, uh, you know, when they were building Fight Island or, you know, when they're trying to put together, you know, certain massive fights, like all that sort of stuff. I think people like seeing that it's human and that it's not perfect. And they like being sort of behind the scenes. They like, they like the curtain to be pulled. Um, and it allows them to get, I guess, just even more of a connection with it. Um, so I, I would say that's what drives a lot of it. And I think a lot of businesses are starting to open that up more and sort of pull the curtains back. Because if you don't, you know, a lot of the times people, they, they just have no idea. And when someone has no idea, there's only, you know, one narrative out there uh, that, that they can follow. And um, they don't see sort of the, the other side of the coin, um, you know, which is even something that, that we run into as well. You know, we started U2s with uh, five people and we're now up to you know, 55 or 60. And uh, we haven't really done a lot of behind the scenes content. So for a lot of people, they look at it and they're like, oh, this company blew up, but it must just be 10 people just, you know, grinding away all day. Um, so that's something we're trying to do too, is, is how can we bring people along the journey to show how stuff is made, you know, to show mm -hmm. um, the challenges. I think people really like seeing the challenges because it, it helps normalize, you know, the, the struggles uh, of building a business. Did you, you know who, who else you should, check out if you want to do more of that yourself. Cause I think you have an incredible story, Austin. I really mean that man. Um, I'm really into this episode. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm about to jump through the screen. Um, uh, but, but the one person, another per example I'd follow is Ben Francis. Mm -hmm. I think he does a great job. Uh, you know, Ben Francis, uh, CEO co and founder or co maybe co-founder of Gymshark, mm -hmm. but he does a lot of video content on YouTube talking about, you know, everything we're, we're mentioning here. So, uh, yeah, I definitely think that would be cool. One, one question, uh, and it's, it's funny we're doing this episode now, I swear. Yes, Just yesterday, I, I saw an interview with uh, Beeple, right? Mm -hmm. Who, for, for maybe I'll let you actually explain who Beeple is, and, and then I'll ask my question. You probably know it much more intimately than I do. Oh, for sure. Um, yes, I guess. So we reached out to Beeple in, uh, I want to say, September, October of last year. Um, so we originally reached out to him because, uh, you know, before he gathered this immense uh, immense fame um, and sort of notoriety, uh, he had been a digital artist who had just been making dailies uh, for 13 or 14 years. Um, so every day he makes uh, an art piece, you know, on his computer um, that he uploads, I think usually to Instagram and, and probably Twitter and a few other platforms as well. 
Um, but we reached out to him because uh, he was already sort of famous within the art world. He had done collaborations with Nike and, and different music artists. Um, and at YouTube's, we had never done anything with sort of a, a proper artist. You know, we had worked with creators and memes and, and licensed IP, but we thought uh, branching into the world of art would be super cool and unique. So out on a limb, you know, we DM'd him on Instagram. We're like, hey, we'd love to make a figure with you. You know, we recognize that you usually do digital art and you haven't made a physical art piece before, but we think it'd be awesome. Um, and funny enough, he replied and he was like, I've always wanted to do one, but usually when I reach out to companies, they won't let me make, you know, what I want to make. They want me to sort of fit into a box. And we're like, hey, you know, like that's what we're all about. Whatever you want to make, we'll figure it out. Um, you know, he, he has some funny art pieces that have other IP in them, like a Buzz Lightyear one. And we are like, we just can't do stuff like that. You know, <laughs> we're not trying to upset Disney. Um, but yeah, so then we started working with him. It took probably six months, start to finish, um, to build the figure that he wanted. Um, he wanted to do a super limited run. We made 333 of them. Um, you know, they, they sold out in, in a second. Um, but over the time when we were working on it with him, I think it was around February is when the NFT market really started to pick up, uh, pick up. Um, and when he had the big sale, I think it was like $69 million. That was when he sort of like really started accelerating in the press and everything. And for a lot of people, they thought that like, that was when we reached out to him, but it's funny because we had started ages ago and it was just sort of, you know, coincidence and luck, I guess that, uh, the world's aligned. Um, but it was super awesome to work with him. I mean, the, the personality that you see from him online is exactly him, you know, like that's not a, uh, a sort of personality that he makes up just on camera. He's super fun, super creative, uh, was very hands-on throughout the process. Um, super nice. And yeah, we, we had a great experience working with him. And I would say that's probably one of our team's, you know, favorite figures that we've made, you know, was just being able to capture a, a piece with someone that, um, you know, has contributed so much art to this world, but it's all been digital, you know, and being able to bring that mm -hmm. to a physical piece was, was really cool. Yeah. And, and, and just to add a bit more context. So, uh, the, the person who people refer to as people, his name is, uh, Michael Winkleman. Um, and, and to your point, Austin, you know, American digital artist, uh, a graphic designer, and a lot of his work is, or can be found on IG. That piece he sold uh, was, I think it, it was called Every Days, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Vinish Sundarisen, I believe, spent the $69 million for the NFT, mm -hmm. which is a non-fungible token. So you're basically getting uh, digital rights to this image. So this, this, all of this to say, we get to the question. Um, and one of the one of the things that I was thinking about and, and a question he got actually in the interview is like, is it really equitable to do that when you're already posting these images on Instagram? So curious as a person who's trying to help these content creators monetize their work, what, what would your response or rebuttal be to that? Yeah. I mean, I would say in Beeple's case, you know, he's definitely, or at least from our position, you know, I, I don't think he's a guy out here trying to make money. I mean, especially in working with us, you know, he didn't make $69 million. Um, and, and he could have easily said, Oh, I don't want to do any more cash this big check. Um, you know, the, the sentiment that we always got was just, this is someone that loves art and loves the internet and loves sort of the combination of those two. Um, and I think, you know, NFTs are a very interesting phenomenon. I, I would say uh, people buy Fortnite skins, you know, they buy FIFA packs. Uh, in video games, it's fully normalized to own these digital assets and, and no one thinks twice of it. And um, in video games, you don't really own them, right? Like the publisher owns them because they're locked behind the screen. Uh, 
And I think NFTs are cool and interesting because it takes it out of that. You know, no longer is it the publisher owning it, but you own it yourself. Um, you know, I think it's hard because there's not a ton of utility yet. Like obviously with, with a Fortnite skin, there's a utility where you can show it off. You can play with it in the game. Um, with NFTs, you know, that hasn't fully crossed over. Um, so that's been why, you know, we haven't delved into it and done a ton of it. But I do think the applications of it are interesting. You know, the video games that are now being built, um, you know, sort of on top of blockchain te uh, technology where, um, you know, you can't have more ownership um, or even means to like earn income uh, is super interesting. And I think over the next few years, those will develop more and, and they'll become more realized. And I'm sure there'll be ups and downs in the market and stuff. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, with anything that's art related, value is based on what someone's willing to pay for it. Uh, and, and that's all it sort of comes down to. And, you know, whoever bought that piece might be able to sell it in 10 years for more. They might be able to sell it in 10 years for less, but it's really what someone else is, is willing to pay for it. Cause, uh, fundamentally, you know, like none of it really has value, um, at, at its core, um, unless you, you know, right. can like buy something with it. Yeah. It's kind of what we ascribe to. And, and that's one of the things he actually mentioned. He's like, well, why would you pay, you know, thousands of dollars for an LB, uh, LV bag? Right. And he's like, well, technically it's really only leather, you know, and it's stitched up to, to make it seem like a bag or a purse. But, uh, you know, if it wasn't without that brand, you know, or the sort of uh, social understanding, the consensus behind what this brand represents, mm -hmm. maybe it's worth X amount, right? But it might not be worth the thousands of dollars that we're willing to, uh, to spend for it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I kind of side more to that, actually. Um, and I, I guess a question I had for you, uh, too, as, as we as we sort of uh, come, come towards the, the end of it, but um, I did want to ask, like, what are you most excited about tech-wise? Obviously, you see NFTs, um, you know, you see a change in, in the way people create content through platforms like um, TikTok, the way we communicate through platforms like uh, Clubhouse or Discord, as an example. But what are you most excited about tech-wise? And what do you think the growth will be for you two, aside from, you know, what, what you're doing now, essentially, in creating these internet toys physically? Yeah, so, I mean, I would say the, the tech side for you twos is um, the, the platform we're releasing soon is, is basically... Um, opening up our internal design academy to our entire uh, community. So right now we have uh, 20 or 22 or so full-time designers here in North America. Most of them are up in Vancouver, Canada, um, that design YouTube's products. And each of them go through an academy. Um, it takes about four weeks uh, internally where they're taught how to design YouTube's products, um, sort of start to finish. Uh, and we're basically going to take that and just open source it. We're going to upload it, um, you know, onto our site so that anyone that wants to design a YouTube's product can. Um, and through that inside the platform, people will be able to then upload, you know, their ideas and their artwork and their versions of YouTube's, uh, and other people will be able to say, Hey, that's something I would love to see made. Um, and through that, we're going to be able to sort of float the best ideas to the top, uh, from our community. And what we've seen in the past, we've made a handful of figures where, um, you know, people within the YouTube community have designed them in collaboration with us. Uh, and we found that people really love that because usually it's someone that's super passionate about, you know, whatever character they're designing. So their spin on it is much more unique uh, and something that people love than someone that might not be as like into that character, you know, that's just sort of designing it based on instructions or something. Um, so through that, you know, we're going to become much more of a platform where anyone can come in and, and sort of design stuff, um, you know, see products that they love. Uh, and then when the best ideas flow to the top, we'll sort of bring those to the IP holders and the creators and say, hey, you know, here's 10 ideas that the community would really love to see. 
you know, which one of these would you want to bring to life? And it's sort of, um, I guess like an Etsy model, but with quality control, you know, we're like, we're still the ones making it. So you don't just have everything under the sun. Um, so I would say that's sort of, you know, our tech ish component to YouTube's, but I would say in general, um, at least related to like NFTs and blockchain, like gaming and, and play to earn, I would say is, is where a lot of the future will go there. And what I'm excited to just follow and see how that develops. Um, I haven't read all the articles, but there's definitely been some that have talked about, um, you know, people that have started playing these games and earned, you know, decent amounts of money just by spending their time on it. Cause you know, in the future, like time is the only commodity that people can't really buy. You can kind of buy everything else. Uh, so finding ways for people to monetize their time investment into these IPs and entertainment, um, and how that translates back to them. Uh, is, is super interesting. And I would say something that, you know, I'm excited at least to follow, even if I'm not, you know, directly involved in it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's kind of like back to that crowdsourcing ideas and feedback. It's kind of like product hunt basically, mm-hmm. but an internal mm-hmm. version, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of neat. Um, I did want to end by, by asking you, you know, given that you look, you look at the story of YouTube so far, which, you know, you've, I think you've only been in market now for probably close to two years, two mm-hmm. and a half years. Um, you know, you have a, a following on IG alone of about 2 million, if not a bit more than that. You've grown 600% year over year. I mean, these are incredible metrics. And the question I have for you for our audience is, what lessons would you be able to share in terms of how you've been able to grow a community in such a short time? For sure. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I would say, uh, there's twofold, right? Like there's our internal team and then, and then the community on the internal side. Um, you know, I, I think everyone says it, but delegation is key. You, you can't be, uh, doing everything at all times. So, uh, we've built an incredible team, um, that is super skilled and specialized within their fields that has helped us build out, uh, design, manufacturing, um, community support, uh, you know, everything that goes into building a great business. And that's obviously been the key to our success in terms of just, you know, the, the growth of the business. Um, in terms of the community, I would say, you know, we, we super look up to Amazon in the sense that, you know, customers are king and, and what they care about is what matters the most. And um, from day one, that was really our sentiment um, and how we wanted to treat our customers. Uh, we really, really go out of our way to build as much of a relationship with them as we can. You know, at the end of the day, we're, we're a business, but, um, we right. try as much as we can to sort of build those, those special experiences. And a lot of it just comes down to, you know, treating people the right way, uh, you know, when they have concerns and questions, you know, helping them with those in, in the most constructive way we can, being super responsive um, and just having a unique voice. You know, something that, that we did with YouTube's early on was um, we created a voice for the business that everyone internally, when they're speaking to someone externally, speaks through that voice. Um, and it's very, you know, joyful, happy going, um, you know, not negative, you know, like you had said early on the podcast, the internet is already a, a, a negative place for a lot of people at times, you know, and, and we definitely don't want to be contributing to that. So, um, you know, like our entire customer support team uh, goes through an academy where they learn, you know, sort of the do's and don'ts of, of how to chat with customers and, um, and the voice, you know, that they need to speak to customers through. And I would say, you know, that's, that's definitely credited with a lot of our growth is just building those passionate relationships um, with our community. And uh, we've also just made a lot of content that people love to share. So I would say if you scroll through like our Twitter or Instagram, it's definitely not a traditional, uh, you know, business where we're posting, hey, you know, here's a product, go buy it. It's much more of things that we think are 
funny and entertaining. Uh, and when you post content that you think is funny and entertaining, other people uh, usually do too, and that makes them want to share it. And by people sharing it, uh, it's helped us scale up, you know, super quickly on on socials. Uh, and it has sort of that that halo effect, right? Where um, you know, one plus one becomes three in a sense, just because more and more people gravitate and they share it. The more people come and they share it, that sort of thing. That, that, that's really interesting. Yeah, I love the that, that Customer Success Academy, by the way. Uh, and I've heard you speak about this before in terms of, you know, even within your community, if there are folks who are, you know, really putting out that negative energy in whichever form it takes, that you're really against that. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's refreshing, at least to hear folks that are part of this internet culture that are at least trying to promote the positive versus the, the, the not so positive, right? For sure. Yeah. I mean, people have everyone has their own internal struggles. And I think especially being on the internet, the more positivity you can push out and the more, you know, safe places that you can create where like-minded people can, can get together and chat um, and, and not experience that negativity, you know, the, the better. Hope you enjoyed the episode today. And if you've made it this far, thank you for listening. Just a quick reminder that today's episode was sponsored by HireRect, the number one hiring app for startups where job seekers and hiring managers can chat about open positions they're interested in anytime, anywhere. Download the HireRect app now on the App Store or Google Play. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.